I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster. Sailing across the sky, and the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, His ministry, and we pray that He will be with you and us tonight, February 2015. We are planning a conference, calling it Sunday's Best. Take a look. on more information as we go along. Uh, if you have or know someone who would do a respectable job of explaining their particular faith stance, please have them either email us at seananalatheamedia.com or call us at 888-868-4686. We've already got a representative from Mormonism, Professor Bob Millett, booked, and we are in a negotiation phase with a Catholic uh, uh, apologist, uh, who, by the way, is requesting $4,000 to appear. And, you know, that amazes the heck out of me. Um, I mean, this man has the opportunity to present and explain the merits of Catholicism to an audience full of varied faith people, and he wants four grand to do it, plus expenses. Uh, we are going to pay an honorarium but at least the PhD Bob Millett at BYU agreed to doing it and he didn't demand any kind of number. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if a person said something like, well, if you guys can help us out with expenses, that would be great, something like that. But to say, you know, for me to even step in the state, it's gonna be four grand. Uh, it's kind of unconscionable to me. So we're gonna be talking to other Catholic apologists See if they're a little cheaper. Uh, and with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, 
one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Many of you are aware of the trouble I got myself into in questioning the viability of the Trinitarian explanation of God. I want you to know that my insights and differences with Trinitarian teachings came from my reading the Bible, not from studying other non-Trinitarian belief systems. Since the supposed tongue-in-cheek inquisition, I have come to learn that there are other Christian groups that reject the Trinity, like a group called Oneness Pentecostals. I didn't know that what oneness meant. I never studied them. Uh, the other day I sat down to lunch with uh, uh, my friend Joe and his wife. They are not Oneness Pentecostals either. During the, uh, the meal, Joe, a pastor for many years, gave me insight into something I want to share tonight. Um, it was something I've never known or seen before, and in my opinion, it adds even more support to my view of regard, uh, regarding the ontology or makeup of God. So go with me and just, just kind of listen and see how this plays out for you. Uh, in Colossians 2.9, speaking of Christ, it says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Have you ever thought about that passage that in Christ in his flesh, we might say, dwelleth the completion, the fullness, of divinity, bodily. That's another way to read it, the fullness of God. Now, hang on to that thought for a minute and jump with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, otherwise known as the Great Commission. I'm sure you will recognize the words readily. It's the only place in Scripture, New Testament, where Father and Son and Holy Spirit are represented this way. Jesus was about to ascend, and he tells his disciples at this time, known as the Great Commission, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, King James Version. Now, when I was an LDS missionary, I baptized people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's how I was taught. That's how I was told it was right. When I became a Christian, I baptized, I've baptized hundreds of people and all of them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost because that's how I was taught it was right. And they used Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said it must be true. But we have to ask ourselves a question here. How come Jesus' very own apostles when they went out into the world, apparently ignored Jesus' command in Matthew 28 and never, ever baptized anybody, according to the biblical text, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Were the apostles being rebellious? Did they discover a better way to baptize than how Jesus had instructed them? Or... Have we gotten the meaning of Jesus' instructions there in Matthew 28 all wrong? I would suggest the latter. You see, nowhere in the, books of, in the book of Acts or any of the epistles do we ever read any apostle doing anything, baptizing, casting out devils, healing, raising the dead, 
none of it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No example, any apostle ever in that. What name did they do things in? Jesus' name. Jesus, in the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name. I would suggest that right before Jesus ascended into heaven, could be wrong, when he told his disciples, now go out and baptize in the name of the Father, I'm pretending I'm Jesus talking to him, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's what I think he was saying. In the name, and, and so when the apostles went out into the world, they baptized in Jesus' name, in whom dwelled the fullness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Remember when Philip comes to Jesus in John chapter 14 and he says, hey, show us the Father. And Jesus says, how I have been so long time with you and yet thou hast not known me, Philip. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believe thou not that I am in the Father? I am in the Father, and the Father in me? And the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but my Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Do you see something about this? How when he told the apostles, go out and baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, he was saying, that's me. That's what he said. And so when they baptized, they baptized in Jesus' name, him. Do you remember in the Old Testament where we find the only capital F for Father, what that is talking about? Go with me to Isaiah 9, 6. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah prophetically said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty Father, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, capital F, the Prince of Peace. The man-made doctrine of the Trinity teaches that Jesus was a son of the Father from the beginning, and that as separate, distinct persons or beings, personalities, whatever you want, the son related to the father just like a son on earth would relate to his father. That's Trinitarian doctrine. And might as well be LDS. All you do is take away the body of the Father and you've got the same LDS teaching. The man-made doctrine of the Trinity also teaches that the Holy Spirit was also a separate being, a third separate being. So we have Father separate, we have Son separate, we have Holy Spirit separate being, distinct identity, distinct personality, distinct uh, calling, and the three of those make God. The three of them make God, three in one, okay? Uh, modalism teaches that the Father became the Son and then the Son became the Holy Spirit and at no time did more than one exist, okay? At the same time, the Father existed and when the Son, when the Father became the Son, the Father no longer existed, it was just the Son. And then when the Son uh, left, the Holy Spirit existed and no longer the Son or the Father. That's modalism. But where I used to reject the illustration that people would say, you wanna understand God? Understand it this way. I'm Sean McCraney, I'm one man, but I am a father, I am a son, and I am a teacher, okay? Well, there's three titles to me. 
I now believe that this perhaps might be the best way to explain Almighty God in the Bible. He is one God of different titles, and in relation to those titles, he fulfills different roles, specifically of being a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. Whatever capacity God is meeting, he is completely God and bears all the titles in full. So when Jesus was on earth, we see God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the fullness dwelling in him. And when the Holy Spirit moves, it is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit completely. And when the Father speaks, it is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three persons or beings or essences that are differentiated, but one God manifesting himself as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Take it for what it's worth. And for those who see him differently, whether they be Trinitarians or Oneness Pentecostals, uh, but claim Jesus shed blood, you're all right by me. I'm just saying I think that it's good to kind of break some of these dogmatic positions down Additionally, as with all things, I may be wrong, and I might even change my mind on this later on. So these are just things to think about relative to what we talk. Okay, and with that, how about a word of prayer? Father God, we praise you and thank you. We are grateful for life. We pray your spirit to be with us in abundance for the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that you will open our eyes to understanding and our ears to hearing truth. And uh, help us tonight as we now talk about the last part of how we perceive the Bible. Bless our volunteers and our supporters. We are so grateful for what anyone and everyone does according to how they are moved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we talked about some of the problems that exist within Christianity writ large. Uh, relative to the Bible and Christian peoples using it. Um, the week before, we showed how the LDS have besmirched the Bible, and in their own particular fashion, over the years and even today, they have downplayed and they have really kind of demeaned the Bible as a whole. So tonight, relative to the Bible, what are we to do? On the one hand, the LDS don't trust the Bible at all, really. And on the other hand, we have more than 33,000 Christian denominations who all think they interpret the Bible better than anyone else. And this has created all sorts of division and mayhem for nearly 1,800 years. Before I suggest what I believe the best approach is to the Bible, I want to make some things clear. First of all, I am not trying to establish another denomination. In fact, I am thinking of even legally trying to change the name of campus. We might make, campus, we might make what we do on Sundays just legally a two parentheses with nothing in the middle. Just, I mean, I'm thinking that might be the best thing to do. Just two parentheses and, and not even speak of it. <laughs> you, you know, uh, so we avoid becoming a denom of any type. All we are attempting to do is build a case for some new perspectives, which we believe are founded on sound biblical principles, and we hope Christians of every walk and denomination will consider adopting them. That's all. If, if they're a Lutheran or Baptist or Calvinist or Arminius or Catholic or Mormon, that they'll consider looking at these perspectives and incorporating them 
into their worldview. I know that's Pollyannish and, and who am I, but I think it's worth at least saying. So it's my hope that as these methods or principles are adopted, they will lead to a ubiquitous change in a worldview that currently thrives in the hearts of most believers today and has created the ugliness that exists between the different factions uh, that exist in Christianity now. So what we are going to do tonight is to suggest another way to view the Bible, okay? We've shown you what the LDS have done. We showed you what the 33,000 denominations, et cetera, have done over the history of Christianity. I don't mean relative to its individual doctrines. I mean perspective of how to view the Bible as a whole, okay? So this topic, how to view the Bible, is going to serve kind of as an initial snowball up on the top of a very steep hill. And once we launch it tonight, I expect that it's going to continue to uh, roll forward for the rest of the year, and the small ball will collect and add more connected perspectives to this first thing that we're going to talk about now. Now, I want you to know that there is no book on earth I value more than this book right here. I love the Bible. I'm not like showing off or anything, this is, but this is my Bible, and uh, I am in it every day. Every morning I'm in this thing, and I'm chewing it up, and I'm trying to understand it, and this is my second one since 2006. The first one was the same size, and it was stolen after I put years of work into it, so this is my second one. So I'm, I'm pointing this out because I want you to know how much I love the content and trust the content of the Bible. Um, we teach the Bible on Sundays verse by verse contextually in two sermons, one called Milk, one called Meat. We sing the verses of the Bible in our worship to get it into our head and hearts. That, I think it's more valuable than the words of men. Um, it is the word of God. It is infallible. It is the single most amazing book on the face of the earth. Now, the Old Testament, of course, is a history, not exhaustive by any means, of God working his will through a chosen nation in preparation to bring the good news to the entire world. Specifically, the Old Testament deals with the nation of Israel and with God bringing them out from among the pagans and establishing a people who he would uh, call his people and they would call him their God. Those people, the children of Israel, originated from Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And then Israel had 12 sons. All of their offspring make up the children of Israel, and after being led out of Egypt, they begin to live under what we call the Law of Moses. For tonight's purposes, we might view this law as a material... Remember that term, a material, tangible, literal material covenant between God and man. And what I mean by this is God promised the nation of Israel material blessings if they were obedient to his commands and directives, his law, and material problems if they disobeyed. Everything, they were blessed with good harvest, they were blessed with good health, they were blessed with protection, and if they disobeyed, they were blessed with bad harvest, bad health, death, no protection, captivity, etc. Some of the promises God made to the children of Israel include the promise of a material Messiah. 
Israel prophetically wrote of this promised Messiah and said, it's the second time we're using the passage tonight, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a uh, son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this, end quote. From the time of Adam, people who ultimately came the nation of Israel looked forward to the arrival, the birth of this child, this son, this prince of peace, this everlasting uh, Father, this mighty God. And guess what? He came. He arrived. As promised, materially, in a human, in human flesh. And when he came, he lived the law of Moses to perfection, and he taught and sought the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he lived a genuine material life. He was born in literal flesh, he learned obedience by the things he suffered materially. He offered up his life materially. He died a material death where blood fell out from him. His heart broke and he died. He was resurrected materially, literally from the tomb. And then he said that he would return materially for his material church. And in my opinion, to complete his work among the nation of Israel, as now there is, that, that completes the work among the uh, nation of Israel, because now there's no difference between Jew and Gentile in Christ Jesus. We are all the same, according to Paul. In addition to fulfilling prophecy found in the Old Testament, Jesus taught 12 apostles. He told them, take the gospel out to the world and share it. These men were leaders in what we refer to as the apostolic church. Jesus ascends into heaven, apostles left. What I believe the apostolic church was, was the actual material church that the gates of hell would not prevail against. Okay, try to keep this in mind. That is the church that we're talking about, the gates of hell not prevailing against. Initially, the apostles only shared the good news with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In time, the good news was given to non-Jews in that area, who we refer to as Gentiles. One of the great trials of the apostolic church faced was overcoming 1,500 years of people being under the law and their traditions uh, created, which created misunderstanding in the minds of those men. It was very difficult for a converted Jew to let go of the law and all the traditions and to make room for grace. And so the apostles were there with the earliest apostolic church to try to keep this thing in balance. And it was, must have been an enormous task. The apostles made compromises among the converted Jews and they tried to keep peace between them and the convert Gentiles who were coming into the church at the same time, who essentially were lawless. They didn't have, they didn't live under the law before. So we had conflict going on there. And that friction uh, created division. And the, and the apostles, by virtue of the Holy Spirit and their writings and their instructions, were able to keep though, that church together by them saying, this is what we need to do here, this is what we need to do there. When Paul came along, um, he joined the apostles and he added even more distancing from the, the period of the law of Moses. 
Paul comes along, he's called to the Gentiles, and his writings take you even further away from uh, the law of Moses. Within the nascent church, there were two sources of scripture to which they would look, all right? The first was the Old Testament, and the second were the inspired writings or letters from the apostles. To the early Christians, it was the Old Testament which they would appeal to to test all things and decide what is good. While the Bereans and others would certainly appeal to the Old Testament as believers in the apostolic church, they would never have resorted to taking the law and reapplying it to themselves. They would look to the Old Testament, they would study the Old Testament, but they would never say, oh, we need to do this now. That's just where we would go and test all things. But we don't, uh, we don't physically obey the law anymore, the early Christians would say. The times had changed. They were under a new administration, the administration of grace, which is actually contrary to the law, contrary to the old covenant. And then, in addition to the old covenant, the apostles also communicated to the early church as a means to help them at that time to survive physically, to survive material, materially uh, with all the pressures that were going on with the Roman, army and with the Jews and with the Gentiles. For almost two millennia, 2,000 years almost, most Christians have somehow come to believe that the apostles were actually writing and addressing future generations. That the New Testament was written primarily for us. Not so, at least never materially. Remember, God promised the material messiahs of the house of Israel who came to them materially, died materially, and then rose materially. And in Matthew 24, this material messiah, his, his apostles said, when are these things that you have just described gonna happen? What is the sign of your coming? And when will be the end of this age? And the messiah said it would be within a generation, 40 biblical years, he said. All these things will come to pass. That's what he said. So the apostles were there holding it together and they were encouraging the early church, the apostolic church, hang on. Our material Messiah is coming back to materially take his material church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the letters and speeches the apostles wrote had material application to that apostolic period and time. Again, because of the confluence of cultures it was so radically volatile, the apostles gave instructions that had material and spiritual applications to the believers as a means to keep the church together. For this reason, we have all sorts of things that pop up in scripture that have absolutely no application in our lives today. We have him talking about widows and how they have to fit a certain thing. We've talked about that before. About women speaking in churches, women teaching and taking subordinate positions. Let me tell you something. If women didn't take those subordinate positions and they started mouthing off in the church, when we have 1,500 years of Jews coming out where women were completely subordinate to their husbands, they would have had chaos in the early church. So the apostles said, shut your mouths. We need to stick together. We don't need cultural warfare here. Women, be silent in church. Stick to what the tradition has because there was a confluence of different cultures that were pushing and pulling on each other. 
And we also have stuff when it came to uh, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, circumcision, elders that were deacons, church planners, giving support, stuff about hairstyles, apparel, jewelry, all sorts of things that are thrown in there. Listen, here's the deal. When we take all this stuff and more and believe it was written to us today, right now, as much as it was written to the believers then, the end result is all that we talked about last week. Denominationalism, sectarianism, dogma, infighting, inquisitions, murder, burning people at the stake. Going back, they don't do it today. They just burn reputations at the stake today. But I mean, this is all, it's all in the name of trying to take what was written for the early apostolic church and apply it right now, okay? From the annals of the Old Testament, the apostolic church gained insights and inspiration and reassurance that the Messiah was all he claimed to be and that they were in harmony with God's will for them at that time. But you would have never, ever seen true Christians in the apostolic church trying to uh, apply the tenets of the old covenant to their walk at that time. In fact, the apostles had to fight strongly against men who were called Judaizers, who were trying to bring in all that stuff from the Old Testament into the existing church. And they had to fight against the Judaizers and say, you're not gonna do that, okay? You're, they're attempting to reassess the law. Now, here's the deal. Nowhere, anywhere in all of the Old Testament do the writers ever suggest, ever, anywhere, what they were writing was applicable to this age. They never do. When we look at the context, it's always to the people in the apostolic church then and without question. It's for Christians to read the New Testament and try to make or get others to follow it to the letter is no different than the apostolic church reaching back to the Old Testament and trying to get believers in the early church to follow the law. In other words, in so many churches, the New Testament has become another law. It's become another way to beat each other over the head with. That was never its intended purpose. It's men that have adopted this view. So in light of this, we're left with a choice. Continue to read the Bible as though it was written for our day materially. And that means you gotta take everything that's in there and say it applies. And we can't do that. Not reasonably, you can't, okay? So if we either do that and then we continue to argue and fight and, and create sex and denominations, or we see it for what it is, a history of God working through inspired men of that age materially, and secondly, as a guide to all believers spiritually thereafter. Again, let me repeat. We can continue to read the Bible as though it was written for our day materially, and try to apply it, and if we do that, we cannot pick and choose. We have to apply it at what it says, and then you have denominational fighting and infighting, or we see it for what it was contextually, a history of God working through inspired men of that age materially, and then having a secondary purpose for all believers thereafter spiritually. Let me support my argument with a few proofs before we go to the phone. Uh, 801-590-8413. We, 
today take a huge stance on you can't pick and choose. You have to take the whole Bible and you have to read it contextually and you can't just cherry pick verses out of it, right? Uh, you would never hear a, a real Christian say, well, I like Romans and John and Galatians, but Colossians and 1 Corinthians, I'm done with. Revelation, forget about it. So just rip those out. Let me ask you something. Did the apostolic church members have the whole word of God even available to them? Did they? Certainly the believers at Corinth had Paul's letters to the Corinthians, uh, but did they also have Jude and First and Second Peter and the rest? I mean, when did the, when did the apostolic believers actually have the entire New Testament collected and gathered and used like we have it today. When? They didn't. They didn't. That didn't officially happen till around 280 AD. And then that was at a time when it was just to find out what was canon and what wasn't. It wasn't like there was a printing press and once they decided this is canon, they could disseminate it out there. What happened was is they said, okay, these are our canonical books and it sucked back into uh, the Catholic Church, essentially. Jerome translated the whole thing, but he translated it into Latin. And the common folk didn't read Latin, only the, the leaders of the Catholic Church read it. And so people weren't able to sit down as believers and study their Bible. To tell you the truth, in reality, individual believers didn't have access and use of the collection of the New Testament um, until the printing press. Gutenberg, and the Bible was not readily available until really the time of Luther and thereafter the, in, in, in that era. What led believers? What kept the body of Christ together? Was there a total apostasy, as the Mormons say, or was there a remnant of faithful believers? And if there was a remnant, what led them? Holy Spirit. See, all the way back in the Old Testament, God gave a promise of how people were gonna relate to him in the new covenant. This is what he said in Jeremiah 31, 33, prophesying about the day of the apostolic church and beyond to our day. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The writer of Hebrews, applying these passages to believers of his day, in the apostolic church, wrote that God had said, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, after the days of the law. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. This is called conscience by the Holy Spirit. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. If these passages are true, and they are, then we face the need for one of the most monumental shifts in Christian history. One of the most monumental shifts, a shift from objective religion that's imposed on us by men using the New Testament as a law to a subjective relationship where dogma and doctrine dies. 
You see, what happened was this. Men decided that the early church was a model that needed to be adopted, replicated, restored, and mimicked by believers since apostolic times. Nowhere are we instructed that this was the case. But men got involved and created this idea of apostolic succession. That worked well, didn't it? And then Reformation by Luther, that saved a lot of lives, didn't it? And then a restoration by Smith, look at what that's created, when in the end, God has never ever even intimated that the, after the apostolic church, after the brick and mortar apostolic church, so to speak, of house churches and these believers, nowhere were this, these, these, these things supposed to happen anymore. It's just not supposed to be. It, we cannot apply that. So the solution to the present ridiculousness of plain church or being the right or true denomination or the church that closest resembles the earliest church is no church at all. I know it sounds radical, but in the sense of not following after material models in the New Testament. The solution is for everyone and anyone who lays claim to Jesus as Lord coming together, if led, praying, if led, doing communion, if desired, reading the word, if they want, developing faith together, and moving on. This means a death to dogma, a death to doctrinal importance, a death to the demanded praxis. Anytime we name something, we divide. Anytime. Anytime we name it, we're dividing people. That has never been what we were supposed to do. And when we sit back and justify it, it's absolutely errant. The only name that should divide believers from the world is Jesus. That's the only name. If people come along and claim Jesus, who are we to challenge them? If they say, he is my savior, he's shed his blood for me, I believe on him and because of him I will be saved, how can we challenge based off the different doctrines and dogmas that are out there? Of course, we teach the word, we share what it says, and all of the spiritual applications it has to Christian life. But Christianity, going all the way back to Kierkegaard, is wholly subjective, and a shift is required. The only time in history the church was objectively applied was when it was under the guide of the apostles, and that was all in response to fighting against the gates of hell and preparing for his imminent physical return to gather up that church. Once that was done, his material uh, work among the material kingdom was complete. And now everything has moved from the material and the objective to the spiritual and the subjective. For this to effectively occur and to transition into the hearts of believers, there is a great need to first deconstruct what has been. Once that's complete, we can then approach not building up again, not building up again, but embracing reasonable biblical models that can be applied to any denomination that claims Christ as Lord and Savior. And the little differences that come in between, that's, up, that's between the believer and God. And we should back off. Now, I know you might be saying, well, that's really easy, you know. I mean, how could you say that, McCraney? You're the guy who's gone after the LDS and everybody else for their differences in doctrinal positions. And so, I'm sorry. I believed I was right. I believe that doctrine and, and, and dogma superseded the need to love. I changed my position tonight.
the 22nd of July, 2014, I apologize for my attitudes and what I have done in the past. I meant them well, but that doesn't mean Jack, really. I was wrong. I do not believe Mormonism is, uh, teaches Christianity, but I do believe that if a Mormon comes into my presence and says, I'm a Christian, I have no right to question it. I'm not gonna. And if a Catholic shows up and says, I'm a Christian, we have no right. And if a Baptist and if a Calvinist comes up and says, no right, none of that is my job. My job is to teach what I believe is true. Congregates can say, we don't like that. We do, we'll go another place. But we have to stop making doctrine and dogma a whipping, a whip that we beat each other with. We have to do that, okay? This leads us into our topic next week, which is gonna, uh, and that's eschatology specifically. When do, the, when do the Latter-day Saints say Jesus will return? What do the majority of Christians say about his return? And then I will prove the following week, I will prove, it's gonna take me some time, using the Bible, this is gonna shake you, it shakes everybody when they first hear it, I will prove he has already returned for his physical church and that everything believers have been looking forward to materially, objectively, and collectively relative to, to his return was accomplished in 70 AD and is now experienced spiritually, subjectively, and by every single individual sense. And let me just end with this. I know we have one call here waiting, but just let me explain it to you this way. The early church, and I'm gonna prove this to you, and I promise you, if you hang with me, you'll see through the Bible that how Jesus himself and all his apostles taught it. But they were looking for him to come and save them, okay? I will go through the scripture and show you. So what we have is Jesus. He lived a life. He died physically. He resurrected physically. He came back for his church materially, physically. He took his church with him at that time in 70 AD. And the, and the body of Christ continues on through believers today. Don't we have a rapture? Don't we have a second coming? Don't we have a resurrection? We do. When every single individual dies from that point forward, a person is raptured, they're taken up, they're automatically judged, they go to hell or they go to heaven, they receive their immediate spiritual resurrected body, and, and we have the whole thing, and they have their second coming of Jesus. Right then, it's all spiritually applied compared to the physical application that occurred in 70 AD with Christ and his church. Hang on to your hats. If I can't prove it and you can prove me wrong, I may apologize again for that one, but I don't think so on this. I can apologize for a lot of things, but when it comes to Jesus' return in 70 AD, let, give me a chance to prove it and we'll go from there. Let's go to Rob on line one. Rob? Rob? Yes. Who's this? This is Rob. You're on the air. All right. Well, this is, this is a momentous occasion. This is a milestone because uh, I was going to ask you why you denigrate Mormon beliefs, but apparently there's been a change of heart. That, no, no, right? there, ha there hasn't been a change of heart. I, I still believe Mormonism absolutely is a horrible institution, but I, I, I am not going to spend my time fighting uh, them and, and Catholics and everybody else, but spend my time trying to open up eyes to what, just what the Bible is teaching and how we can apply that to our lives. 
you cannot grow as an individual or as an institution when everything is aimed at anti. You can't. And and so I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So I, I I wanted to talk briefly about this notion of um, of these interpretations of the Bible. Yeah. Um, you know, me it kind of underscored the need for modern day revelation. But what you were saying, if I understand correctly is that the dogma, the doctrines of these various religions, Protestant religions, um, is unnecessary and that all one needs to do is to carry the Spirit, read the Bible, and then, you know, they have the understanding of Christ's true doctrine. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, I, no, what I'm, I guess, I mean, maybe I would just rephrase it, Rob. I would just say Romans says, you know, it's by the hearing of the word that faith comes. So we teach the word. And it's up to the Holy Spirit to do his job in the hearts of people. And that's all, we, that's all it is. It's, it's simply that. We'll teach the word. You do missionary programs, fine. You teach the word and the Holy Spirit teaches. And then the Holy Spirit is leading them into their faith. And we get rid of dogma. Well, I guess that's the question, is what is the word? I mean, you know that Paul spent most of his epistles were dedicated to correcting misinterpretations of the doctrine. So this is, this is not a new problem. This has happened ever since. I mean, Christ, was his, his purpose was to teach the Pharisees and the Sadducees their misinterpretation of the doctrine. So it, it just seems uh, a little bit uh, more of a rhetorical statement to say that, you know, everyone can just eliminate the dogma, eliminate the doctrine. That's just not possible. No, no, there no. There is a doctrine, and the question is, what is that true doctrine? Because everyone's going to have a different interpretation. They're not going to have a, 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 an interpretation. That's why I included the line, the only reason the church would divide on a, a, a doctrine would be Christ. And, and so it's going to be preach Christ. And if he's preached uh, through, uh, through uh, deception or if he's preached through truth, Christ is preached. And the Holy Spirit... I, I, I taught Christ for two years on a Mormon mission, but you don't... You would not say that I was teaching true no, Christ. No, that's not true. I, don't, I would not say that any longer. I would say that you are teaching what you believe is true of Christ, and I know that God can use whatever you have said in truth or in error to his benefit. Okay, so, okay, yeah, this is, a, this is quite a change. I, I'm, just, I'm a new caller. I'm way out here in Virginia. Uh, I don't yeah. live in Utah, but I was watching some of the threads, your YouTube thread. And I noticed that you spent a lot of time and effort uh, basically trying to undermine the beliefs of LDS. Well, here's what, which here, I understand. Here's what I came to, Rob. I mean, we um, did, Rob, we did seven years of that every week for seven years, missing only once. So, and, and here's the problem. And this is what I came to. I realized that Christianity, when it comes to our 33,000 denominations and all the peculiar things that go on within Christianity, really are not much better. So all I'm saying is let's teach the word, let's let the Holy Spirit be here, let's love one another and let God do his work amongst the hearts of people who are loved and received. That's all I'm saying. If a missionary came to me and said, you have to go to the temple to be saved, I would say, well, elder, let me open up the Bible and talk to you about what the Bible says. But I'm not gonna look at the elder and say, uh, you know, uh, you, you are not a Christian and you aren't welcome here, and anything like that. I think that I've made a mistake. I know that the information I gave was true, Rob. I'm not backing off on the information. 
I'm backing off on the attitude with which the information was delivered. Okay. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Um, no, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's all right. Happens to me <laughs> often. Uh, shoot. All right. Well, no, I've lost it. Hey, it's keep watching. Keep watching, my brother. Call us back. All right. Thank you. God bless. Bye bye. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some time for me. It's going to take some time for everybody. Who knows if this won't even mean anything in the end, but uh, I think it will, at least in my mind. Um, you know, it's really from a pragmatic sense. We have these gatherings called campus here on Sundays, and, you know, we have people who are LDS come in here, and uh, they don't hear the rantings and railings I've done in the past. They hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And, you know, there is a place for the rantings and railings. It did work for people. And it's still working. It's out there. You can't stop it. But if people come to me now, I'm just going to say I have a different message to teach now. It doesn't mean that the old one was wrong. It just means that what I'm doing now, I think, is going to be more effective for where I'm at and where the Lord has me. And I, I have to follow that. That's what I, and that, you know, and I've always said this, and, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating it, it's really easy when you get into apologetics and you get into ministry and you get into churches to build your kingdom. And once you start building it, and once you start getting the gray hair sitting in there and they start paying you the money and you get the building, you gotta toe that line that you established. You can't change because if you do, they leave you and you've got a church you can't pay for. And so empire builders, have to maintain the course. Ministry builders, they have to maintain what they started years ago. They cannot change because if they do, they lose. I can tell you we've lost, we lose. But I have to change as guided by the Holy Spirit come hell or high water. And I'm the only one that has to stand before God about this stuff. You guys stand before him with what your life's about. I will change to if we have nothing and there's no one listening. If that's how the Spirit leads, Jeremiah did it. That's what I'm gonna do. And so that's how it goes with us. Let's go to Byron in Indiana on line one. Byron, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. I'm just calling to say I love you. I've been enjoying the program last few weeks. Thanks, Byron. And, and uh, I'm just mentioning that there was a couple of resources I always liked with my Bible study. Uh, that I didn't know if you had had uh, used or seen, but I, I like to use a uh, Bible dictionary of of New Testament and Old Testament words with with the Strong's numbers by Zodiades from uh, AMG Baker that, Publishing. That sounds good. I like I. I I like to have the the shades of meaning of the words available to me. I like to amplify Bible as another another resource for that. Yeah, my wife used to read the Amplified Bible. I think I I like any tool, any any resource is going to be helpful when you're in search of truth. Thank you for that call, Byron. That's I that's all. I'm just wanting. I know you talk about sources from time to time. Uh, uh, some people don't like the Amplified Bible. It's a little loud for me, but my, otherwise. 
my my biggest my biggest thing is having the the different meanings of the words that sometimes the the English translations don't give you. Yeah, you're right. It's very helpful in study. Thanks for sharing that with the audience, Byron. No problem. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Amplified Bible. I won't go into this. Uh, let's go. I, I, I like the Amplified Bible. I agree with Byron. Let's go to Charlie in Salt Lake City. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hey, Charlie, uh, turn that. There? Yeah, turn that thing down. I am. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Hi. Hi. Well, first of all, I'd like to say, Sean, that uh, we do love you, brother, and we're glad that you're, you're uh, following your heart and standing up to your truth. Um, and then second of all, I, I had a question for you. My question was, I, well, it's kind of rhetorical, I guess. Do you believe the Bible is inspired, Word of God? Yes. Okay. Do you believe that the um, codexes, the, the, the um, um, gatherings of, the, of the, the letters and the epistles and stuff were inspired by God? Um, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> okay. All right. Do you feel that Martin Luther, when he translated it, did you feel he was moved by the Holy Spirit to do so? I would assume yes. Okay. So we see the hand in God, the hand of God in the Holy Spirit, move through history. Yes. With men, with men that were moved by the Holy Spirit that translated and, and and also brought us you know the bible yes so therefore we see god's hand in that throughout the whole um history of the bible and i, I forgot my point i was getting at here <laughs> sorry about that it's all right um um but we see that when jesus was hanging on the cross and he said it was finished i do i do believe that I follow you that it, when he meant it was finished, he meant all of it was finished and that truly his coming was, and we see it all through the writings of Paul, also Peter and all of them, that he was coming back and it did happen in 70 AD because if you read the Bible, as for the letters that are written, it's encouragement to stand in the truth and stand firm in the belief that he is coming, and he is going to take the church, and and the church will not, the gates of hell will not stand against it. Amen. Um, it's very clear, and I and I'm not a scholar. I'm not, but the more I read it, and the more I, I read about the spirit and and who it is, not he. <laughs> <laughs> it it seems to draw. It seems to take on that nature and so I appreciate you what you're doing what you're how you're breaking away from the pack and the denominations because believe me I'm trying to go forward with this idea and I am meeting a lot of resistance yeah unbelievable there is Charlie hang in there you trust the okay. Lord with all your heart and all your might my brother keep going okay hey brother thanks for Here. watching Charlie thanks for calling bye-bye bye I, I don't believe there is a uh, there's a Calvinist and he has his right to the opinion, but he says um, doctrine is everything. 
and uh, I, I am on the opposite side of that. I believe that love is everything, and it's only possible by and through our faith in the King who loved us first. And I, I have lacked in love. I never go back and watch previous programs. In fact, after I did them, I think I can count on one hand where I would go back and watch segments of shows I did before. I don't know what I've done on the shows. I just prepared and presented, but I know that I was not in the right mindset um, in how I delivered things. And I believe the Lord has let me go through some things to show me that. Um, I love any, I love people and I love them if they're atheists. I love them if they are horrible, horrible people in their flesh, if they're prisoners, if they're gay, if they're straight, if they're adulterers, if they're liars, if they're sinners, because that's the command and it's in my heart from him. So if I have that toward people of all walks, how could I not have that same type of love for someone who loves the Lord and is a Catholic? and someone who loves the Lord and is a Mormon, and someone who loves the Lord and is, is a Calvinist. And I have been so hard on people because of doctrine, and I believe doctrine mattered. And I, I do know the doctrine fairly well, not as good as others, but, and, and I used to let that be the club with which I beat people into submission. And you gotta do it this way, and you've gotta do it that way. And I was wrong. And uh, I, I, uh, that's all I can say, and we're gonna go forward and we're going to lay out some principles that I hope will help diffuse the doctrinal bludgeoning and the um, lack of love that believers should have for each other. I'm not ecumenical. I still believe it, religious institutions are heinous and, and evil in my opinion, but the people in them are trying to find God and so that's how we're going to continue to move forward on this and talk about these issues as they go forward. I promise you, you're gonna, be, you're gonna have your minds blown as we get into eschatology now and we start looking at what Jesus said, what the apostles said about his return. If he's returned for his church and that was his second coming, if it is, ask yourself, what does that mean to me now as a believer? What does that mean to me? How do I view my walk? How do I view my relationship with Christ and to others? What does it mean when I die? We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Yeah. Turn me off. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the I can